0: Now we're going through Mark's gospel, and so far we've had a fast-paced account of Jesus bursting onto the scene, proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling people to repent, casting out demons, healing sicknesses, and calling the most unlikely candidates to be his followers. Now we come to a section this morning that Kate read to us, that while a man is healed at the end, is all about very strange stuff. So we've gone for these exciting stories of healings and casting out demons to a a load of stuff that's really quite weird. Um, Fasting, wineskins, healing on the Sabbath, and the bit about David and his men eating holy bread, and then Jesus getting really, really angry and distressed at the Pharisees, and then as, as Gareth said to the kids, plotting to kill Jesus. And that's the end of the section. Now, I originally thought I would give a title to this message. You'll see it in the In Touch, Rules, Religion and Reality. I mean, that still holds, as we'll see. But in looking at this in detail yesterday, I've come up with another title which has really come home to my heart. And that is The Astounding Jesus because as we see these stories unfold, we see more and more of the might and the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ and how astounding he really is. So these verses we read, what are they all about? Well, God's kingdom is on the move, and we see how groundbreaking and genre-busting and utterly radical Jesus is as he comes into this world. He's been announcing and he's been demonstrating the kingdom of God and really saying and showing how God was king in a new way a whole new way and doing things to back up what he said last week we thought of the healing of that man who was paralyzed son your sins are forgiven you and then to show that God has power to forgive sins I have power to forgive sins take up your bed and walk this was all new And something quite different was coming to birth from anything that had ever happened before. Something powerful, something explosive. And in these verses we see a lot more of who Jesus is. And the two main points I want you to hold in your mind this morning are the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now these are very provocative claims that Jesus makes because essentially in both those things he's saying he's God and in Mark chapter 3 we see the Pharisees beginning to plot his death right at the beginning and we see more of why Jesus came as bridegroom and lord of the Sabbath the response of the Pharisees which is just draw-droppingly awful And must challenge us. And the clearest picture we have yet of the opposition that led to the Son of God being put on the cross. And this is this wasn't because those men didn't understand what was going on. It was because of their hard hearts and self-centered sinfulness. So verses eighteen to twenty-two. Let's look at those together. Jesus is the bridegroom now. John the Baptist was not the kind of guy you'd invite for tea unless you've got locusts and a bit of honey in the cupboard. He was quite an austere fellow preaching quite a plain blunt message of repenting for the kingdom of God was at hand. His disciples are fasting. They're going without food as a sign of devotion and the disciples of the Pharisees, the Pharisees themselves, they are fasting and apparently they fasted two complete days every week so they had the 5-2 diet back then i tried it it didn't really work but here is jesus and he is not fasting in fact he's eating and he's eating with all the wrong kinds of people the tax collectors the prostitutes the 'er ne'er-do-wells and there's no sign at all that jesus disciples are fasting and so some people raise a question, and they say, look, verse 18, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, the main times for fasting, going without food in this, this religious way, this devotional way, was at the Day of Atonement, when where was, there was sorrow for sin, and the, the priest would make a sacrifice on behalf of of the Jewish people, and they would then fast on that day, and they'd also fast on those days that reminded them of the great disasters that had happened, like the time when the temple was destroyed in 587 BC by the Babylonians. Surely, Jesus, your disciples should respect the Day of Atonement. You should respect the time when the temple was flattened. Jesus says, well, look, hold on. You think of a wedding. How can the guests at a wedding fast and he's talking here about himself being the bridegroom at a wedding he says they'll fast when the bridegroom is gone and indeed in the early church when the lord jesus christ went back to heaven we do read of the disciples and christians fasting but in secret and with a view to seeking god knowing him better not with view of any of of gaining any merit and doing it as a show So Jesus is saying, what would you think if everyone went to a wedding and sat around just looking miserably at the food? Yesterday I was reading on the BBC website about uh, Pippa Middleton's wedding. Um, Interesting facts from that. Um, Something about the simple English style for the wedding dress. You ladies might appreciate that. One thing that got me was 250,000 quid for the engagement ring. That's a lot of money for a ring. But can you imagine those guests sitting round, and there's either no food or if there is food, they're fasting, they're not eating it. You don't fast at a wedding. And the Lord Jesus is about the business of restoration, he's about the business of new life and the new start for which God's people had longed and looked forward to. The temple was only ever a signpost pointing towards the future. What was to come in the Day of Atonement would no longer be needed because it was going to be fulfilled in Jesus when he died on the cross. So Jesus is saying, look, you look forward now, not back. Now we all generally like a wedding. Not because it's an excuse for a party or to eat and enjoy ourselves, but because weddings say something at a deep level about the goodness, the love and the lavish creative beauty of the God who made the world and the Bible often uses a great wedding as a picture of the wonderful new world that God will eventually make where all those who love the bridegroom the Lord Jesus would be joined to him as his bride and God's Old Testament people were often talked about as his bride but as we saw when Daph took us through the book of Hosea last year God's bride was wayward rebellious often running off with strangers but eventually wooed and won back again so jesus here is describing himself as the bridegroom and when the bridegroom is with you you do not fast indeed you celebrate because there are new things but there are also disturbing new meanings in the air and as we go into verse 21 the lord jesus brings in this great principle fundamental principle of the kingdom no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old making the tear worse and no one pours new wine into old wine skins otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined no they pour new wine into new wine skins and the Lord Jesus is saying I am not bringing into the world a patched up form of something that already exists the gospel is not a modified form of an existing religion. If you, if you sew a piece of unshrunk uh, denim onto old jeans to patch them up, the patch will shrink when the jeans get washed and the jeans will be in a worse state than before. Mind you, for some people in the realms of fashion, that's probably good because you can buy jeans that are ripped. What would my grandmother have said about that? If you put wine which is still fermenting into leather goat skins that have already been stretched to their limit by previous batches of wine, there's no more play in the skins and as the wine begins to ferment and produce gas, the goat skins will split and you'll lose the wine and you'll lose the skins. I don't know whether you remember when you were younger, some of you, but remember those ginger beer plants? You used to have to get this, this, this kind of gunge in a pot and you'd feed it and there was a some kind of fermenting process it wasn't alcoholic but boy it was powerful and often the glass jars that you made it in would burst because the energy couldn't be contained and Jesus is talking about the shatteringly new thing that was happening through him and his ministry you cannot put the gospel into an old mold you just can't do it In the Old Testament, you had the temple, a building, and it was regarded as sacred. Christianity has no buildings, no sacred buildings. If we have a building like we do here, it's because it's good and useful and serves the church. As we are the temple of God, we are God's building. In the Old Testament, you had special priests. But now we're all priests if we know and love the Lord Jesus. Peter says you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's all who are Christians. You can't put the gospel into an existing mold. In the Old Testament, you had robes. The gospel requires you to wear no special clothing except the robe of righteousness that is put on the character and the life of christian believers the righteousness of the lord jesus christ in the old testament there were sacrifices continually now the gospel requires no further sacrifices of that kind because the lord jesus christ was the one great sacrifice for sin forever but our sacrifices are those of a broken spirit a contrite heart sacrifice of praise our lives are sacrifices to the lord jesus now this comes home to us And maybe here this morning, you've been coming for a while, you're thinking about Christian things, that you might want to become a Christian. You like it here. The people are nice. The building's great. The music's good. It'd be a good thing to be involved in the church, but you want to sew a Christian patch onto your life. You want to put Jesus into your life, yes, you want to put his good news into the wineskin of your life, but you can't do that. When Jesus was talking to a religious leader of some considerable gravitas, Nicodemus, he said, look, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. It's new. It's a new start. It's as if you have to go back into your mother's womb and come out again as a new and completely different person. You can't put the gospel into old wineskins the world loves its patches that's how people like to do religion by patches the number of times I've spoken to people who think Jesus is okay who like a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of New Age certainly a bit of astrology all sewing patches onto their life if you like I've got a very good friend, if you go into his kitchen you'll find a picture of the Pope you'll find a picture of some saints something in Arabic, one of the Hindu gods all in the kitchen, all the patches that he, if you like, has sewn onto his life. Really? Is this the gospel of, is this what Jesus is saying? And the world says, look, you adopt our standards when you're debating with us. If you want to put forward Christianity as, as your faith and what you believe to be true, that's fine, but you've got to put it into our wineskin, argue on our terms that there is no absolute truth. What works for you might be fine, but no, you cannot do that because what Jesus does cannot be fitted into existing ways of thinking and living. The gospel is completely different from everything else in the world, every other religion, every other way of thinking, every other worldview. And so are we as gospel believers. We move on then in the chapter, verse 23, where we see not only is Jesus the bridegroom of this wedding, of this this celebration, of this making all things new, but he's also Lord of the Sabbath. The trouble is with the word Sabbath, it's only usually known by people today in the black variety. And so when we come to look at this word, we need to understand what it is. It's a, it's a day, it's a kind of day. It means to cease from doing something, cease from work, and therefore to rest. And it's pattern, this one day in seven was patterned on God's work of creation. And Israel will keep the seventh day of the week, started at sundown on a Friday, finished at sundown on a Saturday. And as I say, it was a day of ceasing your labours, and a day of rest. And it was one of those things that marked the Jews out from their pagan neighbours. One of the fundamental things that reminded them that they were distinctive and that they were the people of God. It wasn't just an odd moral commandment which people obeyed to earn favour from God, it was a sign that they belonged to God, the true God, the creator of the world, who had himself rested on the seventh day. And the Sabbath... To the Jews spoke of freedom, freedom to come and hope for the great day of rest when God would finally free them, deliver them from their enemies. It looked back to the creation of the world, to the exodus from Egypt, and it marked out those who kept it as God's faithful, covenant, and hoping people. So it was actually a really, really significant thing, the Sabbath. And if you look back right at the beginning of the Bible, it was one of those things that God instituted... At the very beginning, marriage, work, the Sabbath. So it's something we cannot skip over when we find it in the Scriptures. Now, keeping the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it had been reinforced by the prophets and by Jewish teaching down through the ages. But as you read these verses, why then does Jesus seem to be driving a coach and horses through the whole concept of the Sabbath? Blowing it out of the water by deliberately antagonizing people who cherished it. By doing things on the Sabbath that apparently you were not supposed to do. Because it had become a weapon, that's why it had become a tool of oppression. Rather than a huge blessing, as we shall see, it was an enforcement tool. It wasn't now good enough to be a loyal Jew. You had to be a better loyal Jew than the other lot. And the whole point of celebrating God's creation and God's salvation had been lost, and the rule mattered now far more than the reality. And we've got here these two incidents that occur on the Sabbath that actually show us what the Sabbath is and teach us clearly about the wonderful love and grace of God in the coming of Jesus and his rule and his kingdom. So here are the Pharisees, and you see the temperature of opposition now begins to rise. The disciples are picking grain for for their lunch on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees had the Old Testament, But in addition, they layered up hundreds and hundreds of other rules, particularly about what you could and couldn't do on the one day in seven. And they were trying to impose on people's consciences all these instructions and directions. For example, you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath day. You couldn't do more than the Sabbath day's journey. Pharisees got round this because apparently where you ate was home. So they'd work it that they would place food at various points on a journey and walk from one meal to the other and the distance between those meals would be less than a Sabbath day's journey. So if they wanted to walk overall further on the Sabbath, they could. If you moved furniture around on the Sabbath, if you you made a mark in the earth floor of your house, you'd broken the Sabbath, desecrated it because you'd actually been ploughing now it sounds ridiculous because it was ridiculous and here is jesus with his disciples in the cornfield now these men with their lists of rules maybe they did have a clipboard like uh, gareth showed the kids were following jesus so they could tick off where he was breaking the rules and they could catch him out because he was becoming to them a great threat because their, their, their religion insisted on what you could see, what you did on the outside. Of course, the gospel starts at the heart. Religion of the Pharisees, they were bothered about which direction you pray, you faced when you prayed, what sort of building you had your services in, what sort of clothes you wore. But the gospel doesn't deal with that. No, it deals with the person, the heart, the spiritual condition and relationship with God now it's fine actually in the law for the disciples to take grain rub off the husk and eat the grains that was permitted it wasn't stealing from the farmer you were allowed to do that but they were doing it on the sabbath which means they were reaping and that was work they were reaping threshing and grinding and desecrating the sabbath and the pharisees say in verse 24 why are they doing what is unlawful on the sabbath And you, Jesus, as their rabbi, you are much more guilty because you should be sorting them out and putting them in their place. Your disciples are Sabbath breakers. And the Lord Jesus speaks and he comes out with this this story about David and his men in the Old Testament. And they are starving hungry. And what David does is to go into where this special holy bread was that only the priest should eat, And distribute it among his men. And what the Lord Jesus is showing above everything else is that there is something more important than rules and regulations and it is the welfare of men and women who are made in the image of God. So if you like, he goes up above the Sabbath to a fundamental overarching principle in God's universe which is to do men and women good and then the Lord Jesus says okay let's talk about the Sabbath the Sabbath was made for man you see what David did whereby eating the special holy bread was good and right it was mercy it was a good act the men were dying of hunger they needed food there's food there The Sabbath was made for man's benefit, says Jesus. It was made to be a blessing. It was made to do him good. It was made to his welfare. God didn't make an institution and then try and squeeze everybody into it, whether it does them any good or not. No, not at all. It was designed to do you good, he is saying. And there is one man who is different from all men, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, of course, as God, is the giver of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and so he may do with it whatever he wishes. And what the Lord did with the Sabbath, that great Old Testament institution designed for man's good, and to mark out God's people as God's treasured possession, was to take off, as it were, the Old Testament clothes and put on New Testament clothes, if you like. Because there came a great day in history, you know, when two Sabbaths touched. Two Sabbaths touched. Sabbath being the seventh day week, if you like, we'd call it Saturday. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the Friday. He was buried and in the tomb on the Saturday and on the first day of the week, the first of the new Sabbaths, we read in the New Testament, He rose from the dead, and that new Sabbath day, that first day of the week, was a day of ceasing, because the Lord Jesus had cried, "It is finished. The work was done of salvation and redemption. What Jesus had come to do was accomplished. And then he could enter into his rest as he'd achieved the work that his Father had sent him to do to die for his people, save them for their sins and rise again the day of the lord's resurrection is called the first of the sabbaths and from then on the disciples met on the first day of the week resurrection day and what that means now for us today is that we come in to rest in christ and we live out our response to him in gratitude and obedience and love as we look forward to that eternal rest when we're with him in glory, that eternal Sabbath rest of the people of God. Now, Jesus' enemies could not see that at all. All they could see were their man-made rules. Now, we would never behave like that, would we? Well, in the old days when I was growing up, it was very much the case of you kept Sunday special. And 40 or 50 years ago, you wouldn't have shops open, you wouldn't have football, you wouldn't have racing on a Sunday... And I was a very, very zealous young Christian and I remember once going to Crawley to see a friend to go to her church and after the service she went round, there were some friends and they were going to go swimming and I said, you can't do that on a Sunday. It seems very quaint, but it, it was the way you thought. And then, horror of all horror, she went into a shop to buy some sweets on a Sunday. That was one shop that was open, the newsagents. And that was it, I couldn't cope with that. And I had to learn very, very clearly as a young Christian, then I went off to work in mission, what was biblical and what was British, British institutions, traditions. Certainly my own upbringing in church was to keep Sunday very special. There was Sunday music. There were Sunday jigsaw puzzles. Now, some of you older ones will remember that, and you can laugh. Some of you younger ones, or you've come to Christ in recent years, think, how crazy is that? It was crazy ridiculous rules. When I went to France to meet with Christian believers there and how they'd meet for worship and then they would all go out to a restaurant and have a meal together and enjoy the rest of the afternoon in fellowship and, and, and joy and enjoying each other's company. I had to learn because where I came from you'd never go to a restaurant on a Sunday and I had to learn that actually if you like the Sabbath was made for man. Now we use our Sundays don't we for fellowship for worship, it's a blessing, it's a privilege to have that day. But think of Christians working in the Middle East. They don't have the first day of the week off, do they? And so these things now have to be seen in that much bigger context of God's eternal Sabbath rest, where the Lord Jesus Christ has died and risen again that we might enter into the fulfilment of what the Sabbath means. That gospel Sabbath is the wonderful ceasing of all our works and efforts to please God, and the wonderful rest we enter into when the weight of our soul rests entirely on Him who has borne our sins and griefs on the cross. One writer said, For Jesus, His own presence is, in that sense, a perpetual Sunday. As long as He is there, it's always time for a celebration. Now we need to hurry on as I see the time. That last incident. That Gareth mentioned to the children. The Pharisees were blinkered and hardened in their hearts, and it gets very much worse. It reaches a frightening and a horrific level in this, our final incident. Now, it's a Sabbath, and the Lord Jesus is going to drive this point home that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And the scene has moved to a synagogue, and I want you to think about this. People there are there to worship God they are there to hear the scriptures read and explained and they are there to pray and in the synagogue there are those who are harboring murder in their hearts and they're out to kill. And some would go straight out of that service to plot with their very own enemies how to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, to destroy him. They are filled with hatred and their hearts are constantly becoming more and more hardened. And in Jesus, they don't see love and holiness and compassion. All they can see is their rules and their reputation being eroded, their influence and power being challenged. Now, here is the man with the shriveled hand, the withered hand. The Pharisees know Jesus can heal this man. They've seen him do it before. But never mind the man, never mind his disability, never mind his poverty, will Jesus heal a non-life-threatening disease on the Sabbath? That is the only thing they're bothered about. Will Jesus break the rule? And the great son of God reads their hearts and he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? (coughs) But they remain silent. He's about to do good. They're about to do evil. He's about to save life, To, to make this man whole again. They are about to destroy him. Which is the correct use of the Sabbath day? It's made for man's good and man's welfare. And he looks at them, in verse 5, in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretches out. His hand was completely restored. And as that man steps forward, Jesus is angered and grieved by the hardness of their hearts, their utter selfishness, their obsession with themselves self 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 all apparently in the name of god they don't care about this man they have no eyes to see that this is the son of god the one all their scriptures are pointing to they resent an act of mercy jesus heals this man by his word the same word that made the universe and everything in it now jesus is asking that man to do the one thing he cannot do he's got a shriveled hand we don't know exactly what that was maybe it was was deformed but certainly it was not operational so when Jesus says stretch out your hand you might have thought the man would think well who are you trying to kid I can't that's the whole point but in the command comes the power and the man reaches out his hand and he is healed same as take up your bed and walk can't I've not, no strength in my limbs but with the command comes the power to obey the command and the Pharisees are bitter and resentful when the Lord Jesus Christ does an act of God and an act of mercy and an act of kindness. The astounding Jesus. He is God and he has authority to forgive sin and literally lay down the law. Two things as we close in the last couple of minutes. Now, this shows us something much deeper and more wonderful than even a man regaining the use of his hand. Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. All people are spiritually dead. You cannot tell a corpse to get up off the slab. You can't tell a man to get up and walk when he's paralysed you can't tell a person suffering from leprosy to be clean you can't move your lifeless soul to the lord but jesus can because his word is life the very word that tells us to come to god through the lord jesus is the very word that gives us life and energy and enables us to do so stretch out your hand jesus says to the man he does so and it's restored whole come to me Says Jesus. Before I was a Christian, I was a lifeless corpse before I heard the gospel. But as I heard the gospel, and I heard, as it were, the Lord Jesus say, Andrew, come to me, I was able to respond because the power of the word of God brought life to my heart and healing. Come to me, says the Lord Jesus Christ. There is power in his word, to enable anyone to do that. And then, you know, have you and I really appreciated the way in which God's kingdom burst in through the work of Jesus, bringing in God's new world? I wonder this morning, if you asked the Lord to do that in your life, or you still want to sew him on as a patch? Or you want to put him into the wineskin of your existing life and framework of the way you want to live your life? And it'd be good to have a bit of Jesus... Yeah, it would be good to have Jesus in my life. Well, it's a bit more than that, you see. When Jesus comes into our lives, he gives us his life. It's a new life. It's a new wineskin. There are no patches. It's a new garment. It's all new. And then Jesus brings us to that point of Sabbath, where we cease striving and trying and climbing to get up to him and relying on our own good works and we rest in him and we put the whole weight of our soul on him and we live out our lives in love and gratitude to our bridegroom our lord of the sabbath our astounding jesus